The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode features a pre-performance lecture on Bizet's Les Pêcheurs de Pearles, or in English, The Pearl Fishers. I saw this on stage at the Met just last week, and I was absolutely blown away by the performance. The production was beautiful, and the singing was amazing, perfectly cast with Diana Damrau as Leila, Matthew Polanzani as Nadir, and Mariusz Kvichen as Zorga. The lecture you're about to hear is presented by Dr. Harlow Robinson, an author, lecturer, and Matthew's Distinguished University Professor of History at Northeastern University. And this was a pre-performance lecture that just happened last night, so we are excited that we are able to get this turned around quickly to share on our podcast. I hope you enjoy Dr. Robinson's take on this fantastic work, which was heralded in the New York Times as the sleeper hit of this year's opera season. Thank you, everyone. It's great to be here once again. This is our friend Georges. Bizet, I thought it would be nice to at least see him. This is one of the, uh, probably the most famous uh, portrait of him with his little pince-nez, you know, and his nice beard, right? Um, and uh, you know, of course, uh, Georges Bizet lived a very short life. You know, it was very tragic. He died soon, right soon after he wrote uh, Carmen, uh, only didn't even make it to age 40. Uh, and there was so much promise in his career. You know, it's one of the great what-ifs. What, what would uh, Bizet have given us more? Uh, this opera, The Pearl Fishers, uh, predates uh, Carmen by about 10 years. It was really his first major opera. He had written a couple of uh, small operas before this, but uh, this was the first full-length opera. And it was actually quite successful at its original performance, although it then it would kind of uh, lay dormant for quite a while in France, although it became more popular actually in Italy and in other countries, and then sort of return to France uh, later on. But I wanted to start tonight, this is a, a really wonderful opera. I happened to see a, a production of this years ago in Oakland. The Oakland Opera, which I don't even think exists anymore, uh, did a, a production of this. And I'm sure you're all aware that the Met has not done it for 100 years. Uh, and it's an opera that we don't get to see very often at all or hear, and I can't quite understand why, because <laughs> It's absolutely full of wonderful music, and really the characters uh, are quite interesting in their own somewhat cardboard way. But, <laughs> but I wanted to start by talking about uh, the context of Orientalism in which this opera fits. First of all, I, I think this is also an opera, you know, we talk about buddy films. I think this is, this is a buddy opera. Uh, and, that's, and it's kind of unusual, you know, because uh, Nadir and Durga, the, respectively the tenor and baritone, uh, they are rivals for Leila, the, the heroine, the coloratura soprano. 
but they are also uh, longtime buddies. And the very famous aria that we're going to look at more closely in a moment, Au Fond du Temple Saint, is all about, well, we're friends and uh, buddies forever. <laughs> and, and in a way, that's how they also remain at the end of the opera. And that's kind of unusual, too, I would say, in the context of operatic plots, that you have friendship, really, is at, is at the center. But uh, the pearl fishers, Les Pêcheurs de Perles, uh, really fits into this whole context of what is called Orientalism. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read the wonderful book by Edward Said, Orientalism. Anybody here read that? <laughs> yes. Well, if you want to read more about this whole phenomenon, and uh, I, I would recommend that to you. But of course, it, this opera is set in Ceylon, although Sri Lanka. Although this production, as I think you know, sort of generalizes it to somewhere in that region and not so specifically uh, Sri Lanka or Ceylon. But of course, there were many operas in the second half of the 19th century, particularly, that are set in these exotic locales. And just a partial list, uh, Bilinas Norma, which was actually probably an inspiration to Bizet in writing this in some ways. Dilib uh, Lakme, of course, Rimsky Korsakov's Sadko, uh, Massenet's Thais, uh, Verdi's Aida, uh, Saint-Saëns' Samson and Dalila, Puccini's Turandot, Puccini's Madama Butterfly. And there is considerable speculation that uh, Puccini was quite affected by this opera in writing Madama Butterfly, even though it's set in Japan. And uh, Richard Strauss' uh, Salome. And what's interesting about these operas, of course, this is the age of imperialism. The great European powers colonizing, conquering and colonizing these areas in, in the Middle East, in, in Asia. And what's a little bit strange about it is that it's a very generalized orient. You know, sort of Japan can substitute for Egypt almost, and Egypt can substitute for Sri Lanka. There's no attempt at ethnographic realism. This is not Janáček. This is not Bartók. This is not Stravinsky. They're not really attempting, or would they even have known the music, actually, of the people they're trying to represent. Uh, that sort of exploration came much later. And Bizet had no experience of Sri Lanka. Uh, it was very much an imagined Sri Lanka. And in some ways, he was more affected by other operas that were written on Orientalist themes than he was by actually Sri Lanka it, itself. And what, one of the things Edward Said says in this book is that the Orient has always been the main source of the image of the other for Westerners. And the West dominated and colonized and exploited the Orient with the presumption of European superiority. There was no attempt at real portrayal of these areas or of the people who lived there. It was a political vision of reality. And very often, the, the uh, basic conflict in these operas is civilization versus barbarians. Uh, Lakme is a really good example of that, where you have the British soldier who basically ends up defiling and killing the native woman, the priestess. Um, and it's very much a reflection of the fear of the unknown, the need to control through representation, uh, also a focus on religious difference. 
Here it's Hinduism primarily. The, what Said describes as the domestication of the exotic. And the myths about the Orient were actually more resilient than actual scientific knowledge uh, in, in these works. Pearl fishes is a little bit different, I think, and that's interesting because there is no European in the cast. The hero, the tenor hero, is Nadir, who is a native, uh, as is Zurga, and as is Leila, the, 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 um, the heroine. Uh, so that's a little bit different because most of these Orientalist operas have to do with the, the contrast, as I said, of Western and Eastern civilization, particularly Lakme. Um, but Nadir is still uh, responsible for sort of defiling <laughs> the, the heroine, uh, uh, Leila, in, in the end. And in the, in the libretto, uh, Bizet calls the people there Indian, right? Indians. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's this very sort of generalized and romanticized view of who they actually are. As Said says, the Orient as such became less important than what the Orientalist made of it. And the, or the artist and composer is a spectator uh, of this exotic land. And as I pointed out, Bizet, of course, had no personal experience himself of, of this region. He had just come back from three years in Italy, uh, which is not Ceylon, certainly. Uh, but he did have a long experience of living in another culture, at least. <laughs> and he did travel all around Italy. He had received the Prix de Rome uh, after being a student in Paris. And he did travel a great deal around Europe. Maybe he heard something more about some of these places, but he didn't travel uh, that far. Another aspect of these operas usually is the veiling and unveiling of the uh, heroine. Uh, and this is really important in this opera. And in fact, the big aria that everybody knows from this, it's actually a duet uh, between the two male characters that we'll look at more closely. It's all about them seeing her unveiling uh, at some point in their past. So a lot of it is about veiling and unveiling. The male gaze, as uh, we like to say in film criticism. The, the Orient was also almost always associated with sexual allure. And the view of that almost always male. As Said says, the real issue is whether indeed there can be a true representation of anything, or whether any and all representations, because they are representations, are embedded first in the language and then in the culture, institutions, and political ambience of the representer. So it's very much Bizet's French view of uh, Ceylon. Each age and society recreates its others and frequently demonizes them. In our, uh, as Americans, and this is something I've been very interested in, and of course the big other in the 20th century was the Soviet Union, Russians. <laughs> and uh, that's a whole other sort of topic, are they Oriental or not? But uh, the whole idea, it's almost like we need to have another, we have to have another culture in order to define our own. And especially in this era of, of exploration and imperialism in the second half of the 19th century. Now, Sri Lanka, as it's known today, Ceylon, it was never a French colony, and this is interesting, right? It was a, a first Portuguese. The Portuguese were the first to uh, colonize uh, Sri Lanka in the early 16th century. Then it came under Dutch control for about 150 years. 
and finally under British control from 1802 to 1948. Both Buddhism and Hinduism were practiced there. Here we hear more about Hinduism. Interestingly, the original setting of the opera was to be Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see these are kind of interchangeable exotic uh, settings, right? But in the end, uh, Bizet and his librettists uh, decided to shift the action to Ceylon, although the story remained the same, two men in love with the same native woman. There was great popular interest in uh, France, in Ceylon at the time, due to a number of books that were published about Ceylon. So that was probably the main reason why the librettists and the producer and Bizet decided to replace Mexico with Ceylon. The libretto of uh, the Pearl Fishers, obviously as the title indicates, it deals with local details, some local details about pearl fishing. And there are prayers to Brahma, uh, but the exotic passages in the music don't sound particularly Eastern or Oriental, but rather fantastic. Uh, there's not much attempt to use native instruments, maybe a little bit of attempt to use some modal kind of scales and harmonies that don't sound entirely Western. But it's not, uh, there was no study of Ceylonese music here. Um, for example, there's a lot of the music is sung in thirds, which are a very Western thing, not, not Eastern. Particularly, for example, the duet that we'll be talking about. Um, so it takes place in a, in a storybook Ceylon of no particular century. That's another thing that's interesting. It's sort of sometime in the past, perhaps at a time so long ago that the West did not yet in any significant sense exist. But uh, Nadir is like the other tenor heroes of other Orientalist operas because he uh, has traveled to become clandestinely involved with an affectionate, sensitive soprano heroine. And thereby, thereby angering the village's autocratic leaders and their armed minions. I mean, think of the finale of Aida, of course, right? And the role of the priest, which is also very important here. So although Nadir is not a Westerner, he is still in search of la femme orientale. And Nadir has been following Leila. And this is interesting too. Nadir is not a warrior. Uh, he's all, he seems in some ways he has sort of more feminine characteristics. You know, he's very tender. Uh, he cares about his friend. He cares about Leila. He doesn't want to kill her <laughs> in order to possess her. Uh, she lures him with her chanting and singing. And that's what we learn in the great duet, that uh, they first saw her, heard her when she was singing as a kind of um, a spiritual guide for the population. Um, and that, so Nadir, as I said, is uh, able to participate as a native with her. And he's not one of those sort of uh, macho, manly swagger guys, which is a little bit unusual. He's kind of dreamy and Eastern. Uh, and we hear this in his wonderful aria that in Act One, Je crois entendre encore, which comes after the duet. Um, so usually Oriental male singers in, the, in opera are villains associated with war, religious ritual, oppressive legalism, hatred of foreigners and intruders. And that is Nurobad in this opera, in the Pearl Fishers. Ramfis in Aida. 
who are priests who have the power to arrest and punish. Uh, the refrain in the duet that we're going to hear and talk about in a minute sounds like a religious procession and a memory. So uh, a lot of this has to do with memory. Uh, in fact, you know, the crucial scene at the beginning is them recalling in their duet how they first heard and saw Leila and both fell in love with her, but, they're but we're not going to fight over her, they say. We are vowed that we are not going to fight over her. She's not going to tear us apart. So that's a bit, as I said, unusual. And finally, or Orientalist composers often relied for stylistic guidance on elements from previous Orientalist compositions, more than on what was known of the actual music of the region. And I think you could say, in Bizet's case, it was hearing uh, Bellini's Norma, maybe, and some other operas by other French composers. And here, let's have just a little musical interlude. This is the opening act one chorus. And the chorus is very important in this opera. Uh, the first music we hear in the opera is the chorus of the, the villagers and the, and the pearl fishers. actually singing, okay, let's dance, let's get rid of the evil spirits so we can have more success uh, fishing for pearls and, and otherwise. Uh, so there's a lot of dancing in this opera too. Uh, that was de rigueur in French opera. <laughs> you know how when Verdi wrote uh, the Sicilian Vespers, he added, he added ballet, Wagner added ballet for Paris uh, productions. Uh, it was pretty much required that you had a number of dance scenes and ballets, and, that, and this opera certainly has that too. So, a little bit about uh, the situation in French music at the time, uh, just to situate uh, the Pearl Fishers, which was first performed in 1862. So at this time, who's active in French opera? Meyer, Meyerbeer, of course, uh, and he was a big presence and an influence on, on Bizet, his opera, The Huguenots, 1832. Also, Alevi, the, the Jew and the Queen of Cyprus. There's another exotic Oriental opera, 1841. Berlioz, the Le which was actually performed the year after the Pearl Fishers, 1863. Also could qualify to some extent as an Orientalist opera. Felicien David, uh, wrote a, a symphonic ode called Christopher Columbus, and also a grand opera called The Pearl of Brazil. Gounod, of course, Faust, 1859, just uh, a few years before Pearl Fishers. Offenbach, uh, Orpheus in the Underworld, 1858. 
and of course Saint-Saëns, uh, Samson and Delilah, which comes a little bit later, 1877. Saint-Saëns is another interesting character in the history of Orientalism because he was fascinated with Algeria. In fact, he died in Algeria. Uh, and he wrote a lot of music that, uh, that was inspired by his time spent in North Africa, including one of his piano concerti. And then finally, of course, Massenet, uh, who wrote a number of Orientalist operas. The, the Le Roi de Lahore, 1875. Le Cid, uh, 1885. I saw a concert production of that in Boston recently. It's quite amazing. <laughs> uh, it's Spanish, but still qualifies as Orientalist to some extent. Esclarmond, and of course, Thais, which probably some of you have seen. So, Berlioz, uh, excuse me, Bizet, wrote The Pearl Fishers when he was only 25. And he had already finished two short operas by then, Le, Doc Le Docteur Miracle and Don Procopio. Uh, he was committed to writing opera as he told his friend Saint-Saëns, I am not made for the symphony. I need the theater. Without it, I don't exist. Of course, he did write some orchestral music, his Symphony in C, which is a very uh, wonderful, and has a, a ballet, of course. The New York City Ballet does a ballet based on it. Uh, Saint-Saëns said of, of, of him, he sought above all things passion and life, whereas I ran after the chimera of purity of style and perfection of form. And as I said, Bizet had just spent three years in Rome after receiving the Prix de Rome after graduating from Paris Conservatory. And he had written an orchestral choral piece called Vasco da Gama, just before Pearl Fishers. And there was a lot of interest in exploration uh, at this time. Composers were interested in explorers, the age of colonies, and imperialism. This opera, uh, a Count, Count Waleski put up a subsidy of 10,000 francs for the theater where it was done, Théâtre Lyrique in Paris, to offer young composers the opportunity to present new operas. This theater's director was a man named Léon Carvalho. He was very important in the history of French opera in the middle and second part of the 19th century. And it was he who sent him to Bizet a libretto written by Michel Carré and Eugène Carmont based on a Hindu tale. So it was an original libretto, not based on a uh, Western literary source in any case. Interesting that Carvalho, the impresario, was born on the island of Mauritius. So he was a colonial. And he was considered to be the most enlightened impresario of his day. He liked new music, but felt quite free to change anything as it was given to him. <laughs> um, the original title of the opera was Leila, which is the name of the heroine. Uh, the libretto was in flux until the premiere, especially the ending. And there's various endings <laughs> that have been done. Uh, for this opera. Uh, the legend has it that the librettist Carré was asking for suggestions about the ending and the impresario Carvalho joked, throw it in the fire. And he took the suggestions literally <laughs> because it ends with a fire, uh, which is in most, in the case, uh, this production too, as I understand, uses this version, uh, whereas Zurga sets a fire to distract everybody from the fact that uh, Leila and Nadir have met each other, and so everybody runs off. And uh, in some uh, versions, he's actually murdered as well, Zorga, by another native uh, with an axe or a knife. Uh, but in this, in this production, he doesn't die. So um, the first performance was September 1863. 
basically, the public liked it pretty well. The critics, not so much. Uh, but Hector Berlioz was there, and he liked it very much. The score of this opera has a, had a real success. It includes a considerable number of beautiful, expressive pieces full of fire and rich coloring. There's no overture but an introduction sung and danced with great verve and spirit. The duet that follows Au Fond de Temple Saint is well carried out in a simple and sober style. Uh, as you know, Berlioz wrote a lot of wonderful musical criticism, so he was quite encouraging uh, about this early opera. Um, as a Slavicist, I have to point out what was the next opera that Bizet wrote after this? Did he, do you know? Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Fourth. Um, which was actually left somewhat unfinished and is virtually unknown. I wish somebody would produce it. Uh, yeah, so his next opera was also kind of an Orientalist fantasy about Ivan the Terrible and 16th century Russia. So there were something like 18 performances of the opera in France, not a very long run. Uh, the, it became much more popular in Italy after 1886 uh, and definitely influenced Puccini, Catalani, and Mascagni. Bernard Shaw was not a fan. He called it a waste of time and energy. <laughs> uh, and Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a fan of Bizet generally, left a performance at the act of act, end of Act One. <laughs> uh, and by accounts of the premiere, Bizet appeared at the curtain call, quote, a little dazed. His head was lowered and revealed only a forest of thick, curly, hair, fair hair above a round, still rather childish, face enlivened, however, by the quick, bright eyes that took in the whole audience with a delighted but embarrassed look. One critic pointed out the influence of Gounod and David. David, Felicien David, had traveled in the Middle East. The critic for Figaro wrote, there were neither fishermen in the libretto nor pearls in the music. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really even more strange, criticized him for being too Wagnerian. And if there's anything this opera is not, it's Wagnerian. I mean, there is uh, some use of leitmotifs, you know, which are important, but not at all in the Wagnerian way. Uh, and really, I think Bizet was never much of a Wagnerian. The libretto revolves around two vows. The vow of friendship between the two young men that is expressed in the duet Au Fond de Temple Saint and the vow taken by Leila as a priestess in the service of the Brahmin temple, where she uh, uh, swears that she will remain chaste uh, so she can protect the population, basically, by singing. Uh, and it's somewhat similar, as I said, to Bellini's Norma, uh, where she falls in love with a Roman proconsul, right, and breaking her vow. So Nadir and Leila break two vows by falling in love the vow of friendship and, and Leila's vow of chastity and purity. Um, originally, there was dial spoken dialogue, as was uh, common in many French operas at this time, but it was eventually re was replaced by recitative. Nadir and Zurga are old friends who have lived by their wits and hunted dangerous animals. And actually, here we can hear the next excerpt, which is Zurga and Nadir finding each other. C'est toi, toi, confin, je revois. It's you, it's you, I finally see. So this is where Zurga and Nadir come together at the very beginning. C'est toi, toi, confin, je revois. 
Après de si longs jours, après de si longs mois, où nous avons vécu séparés l'un de l'autre, Rabat nous réunit, quelle joie est la nôtre. Mais parle, es-tu resté fidèle à ton serment Est-ce un ami que je revois Ou bien un traître de mon amour profond J'ai su me rendre maître So right here, uh, right away, uh, oh, it's you, Nadir, uh, Zurga starts, the baritone. Uh, it's you, and uh, have you remained uh, faithful to our pledge, Sermon, our, our pledge? Our pledge that we would be friends and uh, not allow our mutual love for Layla to separate us. And Nadir replies, "Oh yes, oh yes, I, I am still. I have mastered my emotions, basically, which turns out, of course, not to be true." Uh, now, next, let's turn to the big duet, uh, "Au fond du Temple Saint," and you have the score. Um, how many of you do read music here? So, good number of you. Okay. Uh, well, even if you don't read music, you can read along. <laughs> uh, and we do have the English translation written in here. So after this little exchange where they sort of say, oh, it's you, how nice, you know, how you doing? <laughs> they, they go into this duet, which is actually one of the most famous duets in all of opera. Uh, it's always on the top 50 list of, you know, uh, great operatic duets uh, for tenor and baritone or any duets, really. And it comes quite early. Uh, and what it is, is a recollection of how they both saw Leila. And uh, they were in this temple, and uh, she appeared veiled. Very important. Initially veiled. And what's interesting about this uh, duet is that it goes into the present tense. It's narrated in the present tense. Even though this has happened sometime in the distant, in the past. We don't know exactly when. But the memory of it is so vivid that uh, they relate it in the present tense as though it's still transpiring. And I did notice from looking at the ENO clip of this production, which we're seeing tonight, that there's a vision of Leila that appears uh, during their singing of this duet. You know, they're like envisioning her. Uh, so this is kind of like the backstory, right, uh, to their, relation, their friendship and to uh, Leila. Um, this is basically in B flat major. And what's interesting about how the, the uh, duet is structured is first they sing individually. Nadir and then Zurga and then Nadir and then Zurga sort of answer response. Then when they get to the part where they saw her, they sing, start singing together. <laughs> and in fact, often in octaves to really indicate how united they are. The, you know, the same, the same note, uh, sometimes octaves apart, sometimes actually the same note. The tenor line here rises to B flat, which is pretty high. Uh, and they sing a lot here in beautiful thirds. And really the duet is about the unveiling of Leila before their eyes and then her re-veiling at the end of the duet. So it very much conforms to this Orientalist male fantasy. <laughs> of the, the uh, female unveiling, right, which is incredibly sexual in the, in the context. 
So let's listen and look, and you can look along. Oh, and one other important thing before we start. At the bottom of the first page of the score, the last measure, a theme enters in the flute, which is called the vow theme, generally. And this is a theme that is associated with Leila and her purity. See the very last note on uh, the first page going on to the next uh, three staffs, actually. Uh, it's uh, very stepwise, uh, E flat, D, E flat, C, D, uh, E, da 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 Whenever that uh, turns up, and it reappears many times in the opera, never sung. This is what's so interesting. It's only heard in the instrumental uh, form. It's never sung. And it's not part of the vocal uh, line on, in the duet. But it's, it's initiated here, uh, introduced here, when they're talking about her. And so it represents Leila and her purity. And if you listen closely throughout the opera, when you see it, hear it, you'll see how this comes back time and time again, often in the flute but not always only. Oh, and by the way, this is uh, see Burling and Robert Merrill.
And notice they end together on the same note, E flat. And the whole end of the aria is all about how, well, this led us to be great friends. And because of her, we've made this vow to be uh, friends forever. Jusqu'à la mort, right? Just until death, yes? Uh, so in some versions of the opera, there is death. <laughs> but, uh, so this is really the crux of the whole uh, dramatic and musical language of, of this opera, this, this duet. Uh, which is such a beautiful musical uh, expression of, of friendship. Uh, you know, in this, uh, this, this harmony, of course, it doesn't sound vaguely Ceylonese, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it's very beautiful. <laughs> By the way, if you go on YouTube, see how many amazing versions <laughs> of this duet there are, and lots of other uh, strange adaptations of it, too. Uh, take a look. There's 50, 60 different versions. Uh, I was checking it out on, on the internet the other day. So, um, so that's the real heart of this, although there's many other beautiful arias and, uh, and choruses and dances. Um, there's not too much purely orchestral music here except in some of the dance the sequences, particularly in Act 3. Um, but notice how he embeds that vow theme. That's really important, right? That we hear in the flute and the harp that keeps on coming back. And whenever Layla, and when we finally see Layla, when she finally appears uh, it, later in Act One, uh, when she is, arrives as the goddess who is going to protect them and make sure they have good pearl fishing, uh, we hear that theme. It's always associated with, with her when, when she comes on stage. Okay. Um, so now, Layla, uh, the next cut I wanted to uh, uh, play for you, and the, other, uh, the rest of the music here is from an old French recording uh, that uh, was made in the 1950s. It's actually one of the only full uh, recordings on CD available, with Layla's Pierrette Allary, Nadir's Leopold Simonon, Zurga's René Bianco, and Nourabad's Xavier de Pras, and it's the Orchestre de Concert L'Amoureux. Uh, now here, the next cut is Layla taking the vow with the priest Nurabad, who's a lower bass. Uh, and she says, je jure. He says, well, do you take the vow that you will be chaste so you can be the, uh, and remember she's a goddess, déesse, right? We just heard in the duet, déesse, c'est elle, c'est la déesse, right? So she's kind of uh, not entirely human, yes. Um, so, and she says, yes, I swear, je jure. And at that moment, or very shortly afterward, she recognizes Nadir. Now, how they recognize each other, this is all a little vague, <laughs> actually. You know, we hear in the duet that they both saw her at some point in the past, uh, and they both fell in love with her. How, whether she saw them is never quite clear, but when she appears on stage in Act One, she recognizes Nadir. And it seems that Nadir has been following her around. The details are quite sketchy, but it seems that Nadir has been following her ever since that first meeting, and she also reciprocates these feelings for him. And then Zurga later discovers this and is uh, at first extremely jealous. But the other really important plot point is a necklace, right? Here's a good example of the importance of a prop, right? Uh, because another part of the backstory is that before they saw her uh, and fell in love with her, Zurga was escaping some people who were chasing him 
for some reason, which is not at all clear. And she, Leila, as a young woman or even a girl, took pity on Zorga and hid him so he would not be killed by these pursuers. In gratitude for that, he gives her a necklace. And the necklace becomes extremely important at the end of the opera. When Leila is about to be killed by Zorga, she produces this necklace and says to one of the attendants, would you please give this necklace to my mother? <laughs> and Zorga goes, oh my god, it's the necklace. She's the woman who saved my life. Uh, and then he, he decides to spare her instead of having her killed by the, uh, by everybody wants to kill her because she's proven to be unfaithful to her vow by reciprocating love to Nadir. Got it? <laughs> yeah, so the, the, necklace is, the necklace is important here. So here, Leila is taking the vow and she recognizes Nadir.
Right? So she gives him the, the response. Yes, I swear it. But then later, a little bit later, she recognizes Nadir. And when that happens, of course, Nadir gets extremely excited. And he uh, then uh, has a beautiful aria, romance, Je crois entendre encore, which is another one of the great uh, arias in the tenor repertoire, where he remembers once again hearing her voice, um, how enchanted he was with her and how completely crazy he is about her, basically. There he goes up to a B natural. <laughs> uh, in Ophon de Temple Saint, he went to a B flat. So this is this really beautiful um, uh, romance that he sings about her. Um, okay, so we now know that Nadir is madly in love with Leila and has somehow uh, had a relationship with her. That is not that is not clear. Now Leila starts to do her uh, what she's supposed to be doing to save them, singing these um, uh, chants uh, to uh, to Brahma, and Nadir uh, recognizes her.
So you can see it's very much this coloratura soprano that we, it's very sort of bel canto. I think this opera is maybe the most bel canto of, of, that we have from Bizet. And she goes on to tell the story about the necklace, so, so we know it, you know, uh, how she protected Zorga and the necklace he gave her. And then if we could skip uh, Kyle to number nine, uh, Leila's um, wonderful aria, Come Autrefois, uh, where she uh, remembers this night uh, of romance. And she says how he, during the night he was watching her. So there's something, you know, very voyeuristic about the whole uh, relationship. So when this uh, aria goes on and ends with this amazing cadenza for her, and she goes up to a, a high C. So this is really the showcase for the soprano here to show her stuff, right? And this all um, builds up to a duet between Leila and Nadir, ton cœur n'a pas compris le mien. And they, so like in Au Fond de Temple Saint, they sing separately and then join in this beautiful section at the very end of the duet. Another very famous uh, piece from this uh, opera. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of other scenes I could play for you. We don't have, I have about five minutes, so. Uh, but I like the scene in terms of the dramatic quality of it. Number uh, 12, this is in act two when Zurga recognizes Leila when her veil is torn off. So once again, the whole veil uh, uh, device is very important. Her veil is torn off both literally and figuratively, and he recognizes her and is furious. Avant de fuir à tous, fais-toi connaître. 
This is the very final uh, moments of Act 2. So all has been revealed. Act 3 is actually quite short, although it's in two scenes. And we have the, the final uh, uh, action, as I described, where he she gives the necklace and all of it unravels and the fire happens. That's a good place to end, although that's the end of Act 2. So leaving some surprises for you in, in Act 3. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 14 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or review in iTunes, or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. Remember that the Met's live in HD broadcast of Les Pêcheurs de Pearl, or the Pearl Fishers, can be seen Saturday, January 16th, 2016, in theaters around the world. You can also look forward to next week's podcast episode, which will feature an engaging interview in which Pyotr Bekshawa sits down with Opera News digital editor Adam Wasserman. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and thank you for listening.